TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. I'm Paula Dagnan. We're going to meet Kendra Lynn, she is the organizer of Remembering Our Fallen National Monument as well as Escort. It's a first-time, one-of-a-kind event that's coming here to northeastern Pennsylvania. Kendra has the details. The event is a national memorial. It's called Remember in Our Fallen National Monument. It is a traveling monument that travels across the United States to different places. Um, it'll be at McDade Park September 7th through the 11th. So it's kind of like a... Um We've we've had traveling exhibits that have come mm-hmm. be, through before Vietnam Memorial and things like that. What is this one? This one is everyone that has been killed in action since the War on Terror, so since nine eleven. So when you say everyone has been killed in action, are you talking about the people in the towers in the military in the military in the military killed in action in Iraq or Afghanistan? And how did you become involved in all this? Um, unfortunately, I am a sister of a brother that was killed in Iraq in 2007. Um, my brother, Staff Sergeant Stephen Tudor, he was killed on April 21st. And do you have a local connection here? Um, I'm from Tunkhannock, so um, I've lived there for the last 25 years. Um, so my brother was a graduate of Dunmore High School from 1989, so that's why I decided to bring it here. And what process did you have to go through? First of all, uh, of course, condolences on your brother. Thank you. And we thank your family for their service. But what did you have to go through? And what? How? How does this process happen? Well, it's it's a lot of fundraising. Um, I happen to see it. I am involved in a lot of Gold Star um, family programs. So this came across my email, and I kind of just looked at it and thought, "Wow, that would be amazing." Because unfortunately, our local area um, we have a lot of fallen soldiers. So um, I thought that would be amazing, and I know all the families. So back in October, um, I saw it, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I wonder if I could do this. So then I looked a little more into it. Um, it's over $10,000 to bring it here. Wow. So um, I'm also on a 9-11 committee with the commissioner of Lackawanna County, Pat O'Malley. So immediately I went to our committee, and I'm like, I want to do this. Can you help? And, you know, of course, they were like, absolutely, you know, let's do this. So we were fundraising 
um, all the way up from last year up until now um, to raise the money, and we did. So I'm, I'm thankful. We had so many wonderful sponsors, too, that just stepped up and was just so willing to help us. For the benefit of our listeners, um, explain Gold Star Family to me. Gold Star Family is the immediate family of someone that was killed during action. So anyone, I mean, this goes back not just the war on terror. Um, it's every every war that's ever been had. So if you are immediate next to kin, you are a Gold Star family because that means one of your um, brother, sister's son, daughter, parent was killed in action. When we're also talking about this exhibit now, $10,000, that's a lot. What exactly is the exhibit? Is it a wall? Is it? It's, um, it's, it's, they're pillars. They're maybe like 10 foot pillars almost. And they have pictures of, um, there's usually a military picture of them and then a, um, you know, regular picture of them with their family or their, or their children or, you know, my, my picture of my brother, I have one over in Iraq of him and then one of him holding my daughter Taylor when she was a baby. Um, there's like 12 huge um, pillar stands. Almost like sheets of vinyl? Yeah, sheets of vinyl, I guess you could say, with the pictures all on them. And there's over 4,700 so um, pictures of the fallen on this on this monument. So it's big. Wow. It's big. It's the size of half a football field. field. Yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty. That's pretty. <laughs> yeah. Big. Now, it's if anybody big. is listening, it, it, would they have already been invited, or is this something that they can still get in on? Oh my goodness, they're absolutely invited. It's o- completely open to the public. Um, like I said, it starts September 7th, and it's from um, dawn till dusk every day. On September 11th, it'll end at 11 with the closing ceremony. Saturday is definitely the day to be there. And we have great, great speakers. After the opening ceremony commence, we will be reading, of the, reading the names of all of the fallen from Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's over 7,000, unfortunately. So that'll go throughout the day. Um, on Thursday, September 6th, we are escorting the monument in, which is going to be amazing. So if you uh, have a motorcycle, if you have any kind of military vehicle or first responder vehicle, or if you just want to bring your car, um, we're starting to get together at Mohegan Sun Arena, not Casino, Arena, at noon. The monument's scheduled to arrive at 2, um, and then we will be escorting. I think we have close to 500 motorcycles right now. We'll be escorting the monument all the way down to McDade Park. So that's going to be amazing. That sounds like it's. I got chills. Yeah, it's <laughs> going to be amazing. Chills. What about anybody who may be hearing about this and saying, oh, I have someone that I would like to honor. Is it too late for something like that? Um, if, if you have someone that was killed in the war from Iraq or Afghanistan, if they're not already on it, it is too late for it to be on it for for this one but i strongly suggest you go to their website which is rememberinourfallen.org go right in there and you can add them so in the future it'll be on there and is there a cost no cost nope you just you know you send your information and you'll send the pictures you'll write a little thing about them um and then they'll they'll do it for you can you tell us a little bit about your brother yes like i said he was an 89 graduate of dunmore high school He um, loved his family. He had two children and married to his wife, Wanda, who was also in the Army. Um, He was stationed up in Fort Drum, New York, where he was there for a while. It was his third tour over in Iraq. He was also in the first war in 90, um, in Operation Desert Storm. He was one year away from retiring. 
Um, and he got told that his deployment was going to get extended. Um, so un- unfortunately, that extension cost him his life. Um, we're super proud of him, though. I mean, his, his wife, and they miss him so much. We miss him so much. Um, but he- again, it must be so rewarding to be able to share your stories with 7,000 others whose pictures are up there. It helps. It helps that you're not alone, and everyone handles grief differently. So my way of dealing with it is to get his name out there, get all of them out there to, you know, get people to realize that freedom isn't free. Um, You know, they sacrifice their life. When you sign up, you don't sign up to die. You sign up to protect your country, and if that's the cost, you know, it it happens. Um, But we, we can't lose the thought of them you know, actually dying and realizing what they did for us. And that's given their life. I mean, without them, we'd, we'd be in a lot of trouble. And we might not be here. <laughs> yeah, we might not be here. So I'm just so thankful for him and everyone else that, you know, puts their line, their life out there on the line every day for us. Do you know uh, offhand if there are any other locals who are going to be um, displayed during the? Oh my goodness! Absolutely, I um I de- I got a hold of all the local families. Um, I know them all, so you know when this first started, I immediately reached out to them and say, "Hey, if you're not already on this, get get them out there, get them on there, submit it, so when it's here, they'll be able to come." And we have a lot of Gold Star families um, that are that are joining us. We have some coming from Delaware. Um, all the way up here to, you know, to see this monument because it's the first time it's in Pennsylvania. So that was going to be my next question. I've never heard of this particular monument. Like I said, we've had others that have come through the area. Yeah. So this is something relatively new. Yeah, it actually was unveiled um, just last September in um, Washington, D.C. at the National Monument down there. Um, then since then it's traveled to the Rose Bowl. It was there that week, um, Ronald Reagan library. It just keeps traveling. So it's definitely fairly new. So like a year old boy, that's uh, and you got it here. Yeah. I don't know how that happened for the weekend of September 11th. I was just like, I want this. I'll worry about the money later. So, and that's kind of what happened. That's, that's, a that, that just shows me that you are quite the go-getter. And you said you've been, in, you're involved now with the Lackawanna County Commissioners. And d- do you have other things planned or have you had other things um, planned? Well, we, what we normally do um, started a couple years ago that I became on the committee. We do a 9-11 service at McDade Park because there's a monument there that they had done for all the Lackawanna County soldiers that were killed and people that perished in 9-11. So we were always doing that. Um, and this is why I incorporated it. Um, for Memorial Day, I do a balloon release in Tunkhannock every year because I'm from Tunkhannock. Um, so um, I, I organize that. I get people in town and we have a balloon um, for every soldier that was killed in the state of Pennsylvania. And then at the end, we have a beautiful ceremony and then we release them, which draws in hundreds of people. So that's pretty amazing, too. Well, not only does it sound like that you have these wonderful events that bring everybody together, but it also sounds to me like you are a good resource for someone who may have lost someone and may just need somebody to talk to. Do you have your own Facebook page? I do. Yep, I do. Um, It's just Kendra L. Lynn um, on Facebook. 
Um, you could also follow the, the monument and the escort on Facebook, Remember in Our Fallen National Monument, and then Remember in Our Fallen Escort. Um, so you'll find you'll find that on there to get more information, too. Once again, give us the dates, the where, the when, and start with uh, right from the beginning where they're going to be meeting at Mohegan Sun. September 6th at noon, we're going to start to line up. Kickstands are up at 2. We're going to escort the monument down 81 through um, down to Music, out Davis Street, and over to McDade. So everyone could line the streets in those towns if you're there because it's going to be amazing. Um, and then we'll assemble it. And then Friday morning, it's go time. So right at dawn. September 7th, right through September 11th. And what's going to happen September 11th? September 11th, we'll just have a small closing ceremony and then we'll wrap up. But September 8th, Saturday, that's that's going to be a great day. Um, we have an opening ceremony. We have Alicia Lynn singing the national anthem. Um, we have someone coming up to represent Governor Wolf. Um, we have a lot of things going on. A couple Gold Star families speaking, beautiful singers, um, fiance of Jan Argonish, Talia, she'll also be singing. So that's going to be a great day. Wow. Kendra, thank you so much. Thank you. This is amazing. And I again, I have chills. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks once again to Kendra Lynn for joining us here on Special Edition today to tell us about the upcoming Remembering Our Fallen National Monument that will be coming to McDade Park in Scranton, as well as the Remembering Our Fallen Escort, which will bring the monument to the park on September 6th. Again, if you would like some more information on either one of those events, you can check out the Facebook pages, Remembering Our Fallen National Monument and Remembering Our Fallen Escort. Just as a reminder, since we spoke to Kendra about the upcoming events, there has been a change in the opening ceremony. The time change is now 2 p.m. on Saturday, September 8th at McDade Park. The reading of the names will now begin at 3 p.m., so the organizers ask if you are reading to please be there by 1 o'clock so that you can receive your sheet of names. If you don't want to be there the entire time, then you're asked to come after 3 o'clock. So again, the opening ceremony that is set for Saturday, September 8th at McDade Park in Scranton is now going to be at 2 o'clock and the reading of the names will begin on Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. Now don't go away. More special edition to come. Welcome back to Special Edition. Thanks for joining us. Next, we're going to meet Kathleen Smith. She is the regent of the Shawnee Fort Chapter Daughters of the American Revolution. Yes, the DAR still around and thriving. She's going to tell us about what they do here in our area, in particular in the Wyoming Valley. Let's have you explain, because I think a lot of people hear the initials D-A-R. But when you say D-A-R, it means what? Daughters of the American Revolution. And what does that mean? 
It stands for, it's short for the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution. It's a national society that was organized in October of 1890 in Washington, D.C. And the first local chapter was actually organized in Pennsylvania in 1891. Mm-hmm. So we... we Pennsylvania got started in DAR six months after the fact. So what is the purpose of the DAR from the 1800s to 2018? It's essentially the same. It's We, we um, promote patriotism, historical preservation, education, but now it's a lot different because we no longer wear um, white gloves, hats as much. We, we were what you call today's DAR, like after here I'm running to work. <laughs> in 1890 they had things they were the wives of doctors and lawyers and such and they had servants and if you go to downtown Wilkes-Barre the campus all those grand houses mm-hmm. that was pretty much the local DAR that's where a lot of them lived so these were women the women who gave back to the community and and was very very um pro historic preservation even back then I guess the thing that I think about is when I hear D-A-R, American Revolution, people would think that it was connected with a war effort. They did support the war efforts through the years. They supported, they were very influential in supporting World War I. But these are women and myself, and my daughter just joined. She just turned 18. We trace our lineage back to the American Revolution. Oh. Our patriots either served in the military or supported the war effort by providing goods or services. Uh, some some women are descended from judges and other influential members of the community mm-hmm. at the time. And if you can prove like that, trace your lineage, you can join the DAR. Oh, so wait a minute now. This brings us to a whole different topic. What is Kathleen Smith's lineage that gets her into the DAR? I joined the DAR in 2002 through a man named Daniel St. Clair. He was in Fisher's Ferry, Sunbury area, and he was in the Battle of Paoli. He was 16 at the time, and he lost his most of his fingers on his left hand and his left eye. And he actually had served under the British and came over. And from what we can gather, he was captured and given a choice. You either switch sides or you're done. Oh. So he chose the right course of action. <laughs> and he switched sides. So was he a relative of yours? He was my ninth great-grandfather. Oh. So you were able to trace this. This this is almost like it's a, you're getting a twofer. You're finding out about your family heritage, and you're having... And it, it sounds to me like it is very prestigious. We don't discriminate against race, color, creed, sexual orientation, anything like that. I mean, you have to be a woman. But you do have to have, I guess that's where I'm a little confused. You do have to have a lineage? You definitely have to prove your lineage back. Okay. And I've done it five or six times. Wow. We have, I have five or six relatives. But, but um, some of my patriots were captains. Some were uh, drum majors like Daniel, who was 16. And some just served and paid taxes. If you paid the supply tax... In Pennsylvania or, or taxes locally, you were eligible because you supported the war effort. Ah, okay. So there is there is a connection to the war effort. Now, you said your daughter is 18. Do you have to be 18 to it, become a 18 member? 18 is the youngest, and it goes up until um, there's people that I know that are over 100 years old in it. 
then then the history they must bring. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You were mentioning downtown Wilkesbury and the a big part of the um, the DAR and your group is preservation. Correct. And it's throughout the Wyoming Valley, not just Wilkesbury. Right. So what are some of the places that you have been involved with when it comes to historic preservation? Well, what we like to do is we do cemetery cleanups. Shawnee Ford is big, and we mark a lot of Patriot graves. You may recognize uh, we've done Jesse Fell in Hollenbach. We've done, we just did Benjamin Carey in June. He's in Hanover Green. And that's, incidentally, the oldest cemetery in the area, one of the oldest in the country. It predates the United States. It was founded in June of 1776. Where is that? Hanover Green. Hanover Green. So Hanover Township? Hanover Township, it's right above the San Sui. Oh, okay. And is it a working cemetery today actually, as well? Absolutely. They actually still do burials. That's See, you're bringing a whole new aspect of when people drive past these different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other things you're also involved with is historic restoration of buildings? Correct. We are very heavily involved in the restoration of the Zebulon Butler House in Wilkes-Barre, we're working closely with the Wilkesboro Preservation Society with Tony Brooks, and we actually helped save it from demolition. Um, Tony got a call that it was going to be torn down, mm-hmm. so a few of us were around the clock, literally around the clock, standing guard. Not literally standing guard, but <laughs> like watching the bulldozers so they wouldn't get too close. <gasps> and we also helped raise money to purchase it for the Preservation Society to purchase it. And now we just did a fundraiser at Rodano's. And we just presented the other day a check for over $1,200 to the Preservation Society for the house. So if someone is in the immediate Wyoming Valley area, and there are so many things out there that people don't realize have historic value, I'm sure you've run across that, Mm -hmm. how would they go about getting in touch with you and and coming along and saying, Kathleen, I heard you and I, I think I have something, but I'm not sure. What would you do? I would say contact us on our public Facebook page, Shawnee Fort Chapter NSDAR. And then I would also recommend going to the Wilkesboro Preservation Society page because a lot of what we do with the Preservation Society is on there as well, along with walking tours and other historic things that are are going on in Wilkesboro. Around uh, holiday time, you have different walking tours that you do, especially for uh, Halloween I don't do them. You don't do them. A lot of times the Historical Society does it, and a lot of times Tony does it. Right. For the Preservation Society. But it's, it's again, it's one of those things where if people want to find out about the history of Wilkes-Barre, right off the top of your head, what are some of the other places that people pass every day and may not even, like that cemetery in Hanover, and may not realize what some of the, you said the Zebulon House? Now, where is that? Zebulon Butler House. It's on South River Street, and it's actually the office for the Preservation Society. But it was not never on Butler Street. It was never any other type of house. It was the Zebulon Butler House, and, and Zebulon Butler was actually the, the leader of the Connecticut Army in 1778 during the Battle of Wyoming. And he actually built a log cabin, and then in 1793, he and his son, Lord Butler, enclosed it with a the house that you pretty much see today. <gasps> And it was moved in 1868 by the family. Can and that's you, the only reason it really survived. Can you imagine moving a house in 1868? I can't. <laughs> that's incredible. 
Well, we're talking about so many of these different things, and um, you mentioned Tony Brooks because he does do and get involved in all different kinds of restorations and renovations. And you have something coming up where people are going to have an opportunity to hear him speak and also find out more about you. What is the event? We're very excited to have a World War One luncheon coming up in October. It's October 20th at Genetti's. And this year is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One, And Tony's going to speak about Asher Minor, who was leader of the 109th during World War I. He's a very influential name locally as well. It's it's a luncheon that we want to honor the World War I veterans and also celebrate the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice. Do you have any World War I veterans that you are going to be able to honor there? I do. I've, I've actually put it out to my members to include their patriots, their, their veterans. And I also have my great-grandfather, Thomas Cochran, was in the ambulance corps. And from what I can understand, all the ambulance training was done at the Allentown Fairgrounds. Now, he was originally from, like, California at this time. So he had to go to Allentown, which is where he met my great-grandmother, who lived in Allentown at the time. So, And what year was that? 1918, my grandfather was born. And again, imagine traveling to Allentown. So even it was it was a long time before the turnpike. Right, right. <laughs> so how do we get the details about the uh, the upcoming luncheon? If anyone knows of any World War One folks who, or if they would just like to attend themselves, you can go on our public Facebook page again, but yeah, you know, and you can give me a call. It's five seven zero seven zero four nine eight zero nine. And you said it's October twentieth. October twentieth. But you need reservations by October 6th. And it's going to be, uh, Tony Brooks is going to be there speaking on Asher Minor, who led the 109th during World War One. And indeed, we do need to have the uh, reservations. The reservation deadline is October 6th. Where did you find out all the information about your family? My sister actually had wanted to join the DAR. And I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. I said, why in the world do you want to join a group of old ladies. <laughs> I said, what in the world would you, you know, I, I couldn't understand it. She was dead set on joining. So I said, all right. And then she was unfortunately killed in a car accident. Oh. And so. Before she got to before, join? Before she even really did a lot of the research. She was 19. And so I did the research just to see what it was about. And I figured if she wanted to do it, let's look into it. Get my mind off things, you know. And so I just, I contacted the local chapter and I joined. But then in, in 2009, I, I broke off from the local chapter and I started Shawnee Fort. You started this? We st- yeah, I started it with, we, we organized with 12 ladies. And what does Shawnee Fort symbolize? We're named after Fort Shawnee, who, which was in Plymouth in 1776 or so. And then it burned down a couple times and they have yet to find exactly where it was. But what they used to do is they used to take the public into the fort to protect them from Indian attacks and things. In Plymouth. In Plymouth. Indian attacks. Kathleen, you are just amazing when it comes to all these different things. We're going to have to have you back again. Oh, come back anytime. I'm happy to. Absolutely. And again, that is uh, D-A-R, and it you have your Facebook page, and give us that one more time. Shawnee Fort Chapter N-S-D-A-R. You can also Google us or give me a call. You can find us on the, on the Preservation Society page as well, Wilkes-Barre Preservation Society. 
get a hold of Tony. He'll get in touch with me. It's not hard. I'm all over the place. And indeed she is. That's Kathleen Smith, regent of Shawnee Fort Chapter, Daughters of American Revolution. And a reminder that the World War I luncheon is going to be coming up on October 20th at Genetti's in Wilkes-Barre. And the reservations must be in by October 6th. If you'd like to find out more, you can find Shawnee Fort Chapter NSDAR on Facebook. Now, don't go away. More special edition coming up. Welcome back to Special Edition. There may be water, water everywhere, but not all of it is drinkable. Intercom's Webster and Nancy talks to a woman with details about one water system. We're going to uh, get into uh, something very, very important, and it really uh, is something we should all be paying attention to, and it's what has uh, been going on and has happened in Flint, Michigan. We have with us Anna Clark, author of the book, The Poison City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. Uh, Ms. Clark, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Flint, and we also want to talk about, you know, for the rest of us, uh, what this means uh, just about the water systems throughout all of our country. But um, Flint, uh, can you quickly give us a little bit of a timeline about what had happened there and, uh, and you know, what residents were experiencing? Sure. Uh, well, uh, the city of Flint had been drinking water from uh, uh, Lake Huron through the Detroit water system for about 50 years. Um, it, uh, for a number of reasons, it was under... Um, a state-appointed emergency management system in uh, 2014 when it made a switch off the Detroit water system. So these emergency managers are, um, you know, appointed to cities that are seen as fiscally distressed, you know. And yeah. so, um, they, so they switched the water system um, to join a new water system that wasn't yet built. And while that one was being built, they decided they were going to treat their own water from the Flint River. Um, but the problem were that they didn't upgrade the old city treatment plant um, sufficiently to deal with the river water, and they also didn't treat it with something called corrosion control, which was a violation of federal law and caused the infrastructure, including the lead pipes, to start deteriorating and contaminating the water. But wow. of course, it was that a uh, cost-cutting measure? Time for this all to- yeah. Is this is this well, about was yeah, it about I mean, money or was it about uh, inexperience? Was it a little bit of everything? Was it you know just incompetence? Yeah, quite quite literally. These are the questions that are um, being debated in courtrooms right now. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, because it, in so many ways it seems, um, you know, uh, just very confusing. Like even and even under the idea of like saving money, which of course Flint needed to do and was under emergency management and was required to do, um, this is still a really complicated um, and risky way to do that. Um, of course, right? So. And, of course, it's ended up costing far more money than it would have to have just stuck with the Detroit water system until um, until the new water system was built, or just stick with Detroit, period. Um, right. Yeah, so it, was, so it took a very long time for um, uh, community organizers to eventually bring this to light and, um, and, and get this uh, 
uh, get, get a response taken. All right, um, and it seems it seems like you have you had very heroic uh, stories from people who continue to press. We're talking about everyday people who uh, were became activists because of this, and you also had uh, a news organization that helped to uh, I guess amplify their voices so we can go somewhere with this thing. Right. Yeah. So community organizers. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, this is the inspiring piece of the story. I mean, they they did everything you know they should do. I mean, they as soon as they started noticing um, some issues with the water, that it looked strange, it smelled strange. They you know they were showing up at public meetings. They were asking questions of the city, state, and federal authorities. They um, were lobbying you know in the state capitol. They were they were they were doing everything they could to figure out what was going on. Um, and also to get um, get their concerns taken seriously, um, it, it what eventually caused a, a shift was about a year a year after the water switch. Um, there was um, an EPA official in Chicago who worked with a resident and helped um, you know do some testing to see that she had really astronomical levels of lead in her home. And he was he wrote a memo about this and also about you know, how the state's water tests were exploiting a lot of loopholes that underestimated how much lead was in it. And when um, reporters started um, um, uh, publishing this report and asking officials about it, it really, it, that was a big turn in the story. Yeah. And again, when they saw that the state's own numbers uh, showed it was, you know, even worse, weren't they mis, they were misinterpreting, uh, I guess, uh, some of the results. Yeah, that and that was that was one of the weirder pieces of it. I mean, there was like there was like two parts of the story. Like one showing that um, there was a lead problem in the water, and another piece was like showing that this was actually affecting children, um, that it was actually affecting their health. And that piece of the story, um, there's a local pediatrician who also has a book about um, Flint that's um, telling her side of the story. Um, she she was able to um, show that the that the number that uh, that. The blood level, the lead numbers in Flint children were, were um, accelerating since the water switch. The state denied it, but when a, the Detroit Free Press looked at even the state's numbers, it actually confirmed what the doctor had been saying all along. It's one of the things I find most fascinating about it was the fact that these people had foaming water coming out, like water that was foaming and out they, of the but, tap, and they and then the state was like, "No, no, it's fine," and they had to take it upon themselves to go test it. Like, and they say, and your book talks about how like the. Uh, you know, the lower income people took, got taken advantage of a bit because they. Yeah, I mean that's this is that's one of the weirdest parts of the story, right? I mean, like, I mean, people could tell you can tell when something's weird about your drinking water, you know, yep. especially and, when it um, bubbles and foams. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's quite unnerving, um, and, and and yeah, eventually, you know, the, the you know the state kept citing its own data, saying that it they said it was fine, and eventually the the residents worked with um, some scientists at Virginia Tech. They did a citywide totally scientifically valid tests on their own that show that actually that the state's numbers were off. It's just a, it's a terrible story. Let's uh, let's talk about just the infrastructure throughout this country because uh, obviously uh, we don't see a lot of these old pipes. They're underground. So when you can't see something, it's easier to ignore it or not even, you know, it's it's mysterious, isn't it? I mean, we don't, we don't really know. I mean, we know that we're told all the time we need to upgrade, but it is costly and we're not seeing money go to this stuff. The, one of the most important things all, the water that we drink. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, this is really a nationwide story. I mean, infrastructure, even the infrastructure that we see every day, like our roads and our bridges, even that isn't often getting the funding that it deserves. Um, and especially the infrastructure that's invisible, like our drinking water pipes. Um, it's just easy to forget, delay, defer, you know, um, and, 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 you know, just kind of do kind of patch-up jobs. Um, and, and, it's, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous because this is drinking water. We, if it, we don't have safe drinking water every day, we will literally die. I mean, we really do need to get it right. And, um, and, and I know, I know in, in, um, you know, there's been lead issues, you know, in other cities all over the country, including Pittsburgh. Um, and even, uh, and then what I hope the Flint story does is, you know, galvanize people to take their infrastructure more seriously and especially to build up some political will to get rid of the lead in our drinking water infrastructure because it's always toxic. It just is. Now, what's the situation in Flint today? Um, we can talk about what, uh, how is the water in Flint today? Um, well, people say different things, honestly. It's, it's a little confusing. I mean, one, one thing that is happening is that um, its infrastructure was so damaged um, that it is being um, um, entirely replaced. Its pipes are being entirely replaced, partly out of a class action settlement. That process is going until, um, won't be finished until about 2019 or 2020. Um, so the state did discontinue bottled water delivery to this residence in uh, April, citing improved lead tests which is great. It's back on Detroit water system, but uh, lead isn't the only thing that concerns Flint residents. There is a number of other contamination issues, and many people feel that until the pipes are fully replaced, they would um, they, they feel very cautious about the taps. With the infrastructure here in Northeast PA being old, maybe even older than Detroit, it's got to be at least mm-hmm. close. Are there like tests people can just buy, like over the, like just go to like Home Depot, buy your, a test? Well, and- you can go, go, get your own uh, water testing done, but it can be very costly. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and honestly, there's there's some, you know, little gadgets and things like that that I think are, like, well, actually dubious. Um, <laughs> um, but what people can do, um, yeah, you can get your water tested, you know, usually through uh, the city. Um, and you can also, because they need tests, because they, they are required to do tests sometimes. You can say, hey, I want to be one of the houses. Mm-hmm. And you can also... Um, um, people can also get uh, filters certified for lead to put on their kitchen faucets that they might use most frequently. That's a good idea. Um, and just getting, you know, just getting informed too, finding out if you are served by a lead line at all, you know, um, maybe you aren't, maybe you are. Um, it's, it's always better to know. It's good to have information. Finally, just to mention here, I see where uh, criminal indictments uh, have happened uh, of local and state officials. Uh, I don't know where we're at with that now, but it seems that, uh, uh, you know, so that we can demand accountability uh, uh, for others and, and let them know how serious this, serious this is. I do believe that uh, those are appropriate. Right, yeah. Here here in the Great Lakes State, we had this man-made water disaster, and there's a lot of people who um, in Flint who are, you know, hungry to see some responsibility, you know, taken for that. Um, and that's, uh, there were 15 indictments, mostly of um, uh, state officials that are environmental in our health departments, as well as two emergency managers in Flint. Um, the uh, they, the preliminary examinations for many of them are either still ongoing or, in one case, um, just finished. Um, the highest level person who was charged um, with some very serious charges, including involuntary manslaughter relating to um, a, the other contamination issue in Flint, the Legionnaires' disease outbreak. Um, but we, we're, we will find out soon if he's going to be headed to trial or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and. 
you know, other folks are still haven't even started their examination. So really, I think the court cases are going to be playing out for a number of years. Listen, thank you uh, for the time. It's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting story. Anna Clark, uh, the book is called The Poisoned City, uh, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. You can get more information. Anna Clark, thanks for being with us today and good luck with the uh, with the book. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. You, you too. too. Mark your calendar for Sunday, September 9th. Main Street in Nicholson is going to be the place to be. That's because it's Nicholson Bridge Day. It's the 103rd year of the Nicholson Bridge, otherwise known as the Tunkhannock Viaduct. Intercom's Nikki Stone caught up with Joan Kopeski. She is one of those who are putting together the upcoming big celebration. Nicholson Bridge Day. I have Joan Kopetsky on the line with me. How you doing, Joan? I'm great, Nikki. How are you? Good. That's coming up really fast now. Bridge it is. Day. It is. We're getting down to the wire. So we did 100 years ago. How many years? Uh, 100 years? It was in 2015. Oh, time, so Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> it does. It does. Yes. We're... we're uh, 103rd anniversary of the Nicholson Bridge. Yes. Or the Bridge Day celebration. Correct. Right. Uh, unbel- to have something go on for 103 years is amazing in itself. And it's just a good time to get the community all together and people who may have never come to explore their own backyard in Northeast PA to see that amazing structure. It's, it is wonderful. Now, I must say, the Nicholson Bridge has been there 103 years. We have not been doing Bridge Day that many okay. years, but we do go back quite a few years. But, yeah, we are going to have vendors and lots of good food. And as far as the Nicholson Bridge, there will be a Phoebe Snow and a conductor presentation. We're going to have model train displays at the fire hall so all the model train enthusiasts can go and see the train displays. Now, that's new this year. You've never had those trains. No, we did have that a couple times. For the 100th anniversary, the model train uh, exhibit was at what was uh, the... uh, Farmer Supply. Farmer Supply store, and when they closed, they moved it to the fire hall. Okay. And we'll have carriage rides, and we're actually going to have a bubblegum blowing contest this year. Lots of fun and games, and the Mountain View High School Band, T-Town Twirlers, uh, lots of good stuff. And, of course, it's our main fundraising for the women's club so that we could do all the good work we do in the community and you have um, a local help bands, everyone. local musicians will be playing? Yes, we do have local musicians, and um, we have... Uh, over 60 vendors with arts, crafts, antiques, lots of good food. Uh, children's activities will be behind the post office. We have um, Keystone College has been wonderful in helping us have kid-friendly activities. And we've earmarked the area near the post office to have kid-friendly activities, face painting, uh, kitties from the Mishap and Pet Rescue, lots of good stuff going on. Always a nice time and lots of history on the bridge. If you don't know about the Tunkhannock Viaduct, the um, what it's officially called, correct? Um, correct. We lovingly call it the Nicholson Bridge. It is just an amazing sight. And there's nothing like watching 
a sunset over the bridge. Every once in a while, you're lucky to catch a rainbow near the bridge or even an occasional hot air balloon going over the bridge. Yes. It's something that completely amazes me. And one time, I got to sit underneath the bridge and take some awesome pictures and different angles of that bridge. Uh, so you got to come out and at least see that and learn the history of it and the building of the bridge. Uh, it, it's just a spectacular view in Northeast PA. I don't even know what else to say. So It is. And we're, we're going to have the Nicholson Heritage there. And they're, they're hoping to announce when they're going to start the renovations on the um, station. Which is exciting, right? That's they've been working on that and doing some um, fundraising yes. to be able to turn the DNL station. It is yes into uh, another uh, like a historic yes site, and it should be pretty interesting coming up in in uh, the next few years. Yes, so Bridge Day is Sunday, September ninth, from nine to four. We invite everyone to come by. We have a wonderful chicken barbecue every year, and like I said, over 60 vendors and lots of good crafts. We try to keep it local to support our local economy, so we have local crafts people, wood crafts, jewelry crafts, candle makers, herbal people, all kinds of good stuff. It'll be very interesting. I'll be there, and I'll see you there, Joan. Yes, definitely. All right, you have a great day. Thank you for taking the time to tell us about what's going on in Nicholson. Thanks once again to Nikki and Joan for giving us the information. Again, that's Nicholson Bridge Day coming on Sunday, September 9th, Main Street in Nicholson from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. It's back to school time and everyone's worried about safety, getting to and from school, but what about at home? We're going to talk right now with Scranton Fire Superintendent Pat DeSarno. He has a program that you, if you're a Scranton resident, can get free smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors in your home with free installation. The number, 570-348-4164, extension 1. We'll let Pat tell you more. We have an amazing smoke detector program in the city that I don't know why it's not being utilized more. If you call this number, 570-348-4164, and you hit prompt 1, extension 1, we have a program that gives you two 10-year detectors, Three, whatever, however many bedrooms you have, we will put two year smoke detectors in and a CO alarm for free installed. Awesome. All you need to do as a Scranton, every Scranton resident, you don't have to own, whether you own, rent, <laughs> if you call this number, we have we will install for you free smoke detectors because our, our main goal is, is uh, safety, you know, especially with, for children. Um, and we've tried to get the word out to the, into the schools. You know, we've, we've expanded this program under my tenure, so for lack of a better word, because that's something I'm really uh, up on. I really care about. Well, again, it's prevention. Yes, prevention. Uh, it, sadly, are, are a lot of the, the uh, injuries and sometimes fatalities that happen could have been prevented with a little bit of, uh, little bit of some smoke detectors. 
in yeah. a home and a CO detector. Yeah, that was part of that was one of the things we added to our, to the to our program that we've had in place, and we just expanded it a little more. But we're really trying to push it, and I really wish people would take advantage of it uh, in the city of Scranton. Free installation, you can't beat it. No, and and you'll come. Simple phone call. I might might stop by <laughs> personally. again is Scranton Fire Superintendent Pat DeSarno and for Scranton residents it's free. Smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors. Installation in your home or apartment is also free. You can call and find out more. 570-348-4164 and press the number 1 and tell them that you'd like more information about smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors to keep your home safe. And on this Labor Day weekend, a reminder, it's a big fest in downtown Scranton on Courthouse Square. La Festa Italiana underway throughout the weekend, continuing right through Monday. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Got clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back 3, you bet! Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.